Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Dr. Nahama Brody. Nahama has worked as a multimedia journalist, editor, producer, and publisher for nearly 25 years. During this time, she's dodged the secret police in Burma, explored tunnels underneath Johannesburg, got in dusty at rock festivals, and reported on the myth of white genocide in South Africa. Her journalistic work has appeared in leading South African newspapers like the Sunday Times, Melon Guardian, City Press, and in India in the Hindustan Times and the Guardian in the UK. Nkhama has also previously headed up the training and research division, TriFacts, for the independent fact-checking agency, Africa Check. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Nkhama has a PhD in journalism and is a part-time lecturer at the University of Wits School of Journalism and Media Studies. Her research work focuses on interpersonal violence and media representations of violence. She's also a musician, a singer, and unrelated, a martial artist, and a fiction writer. In addition to her journalistic work, Nkhama is the author of several books, the Joburg book from Pan Macmillan, which is a contemporary history of the city, and it was long listed for the Alan Payton Award and had sold over 10,000 copies. She followed this up with Inside Joburg, the Cape Town book, I Ran For My Life, Rule of Law, and many others. Her first novel, a supernatural thriller called Knucklebone, was published in 2018 and was long listed for the Barry Ronger Prize for South African Fiction and shortlisted for the Noma Awards for African Speculative Fiction. In 2020, Nahama, like me, published two books that were lost to the crazy lockdown time. The sequel to Knucklebone, Three Bodies, in March, and her non-fiction work, Femicide in South Africa, in July. In the introduction to femicide, she says, Femicide, like the murders of children and perhaps the elderly, carries such distinct features that if we were to try and understand or profile these killings only in the context of male homicide, we would miss the point entirely. The violence meted out against women has long been distinct from the violence meted out between men. Most violent injuries between men arise from everyday life, more often involving strangers and including purely defined arguments and quarrels over money, women, and drunkenness, whereas most women are attacked and harmed by someone they know. When men often participate in or even initiate violence against each other, even when they are with strangers, women are subjected to violence, and mostly by people close to them. So today I'll be talking to Nahama about femicide, how to tell fact from fiction, and her writing life. Welcome, Nahama. Thanks, Jen. And when you're describing me, I'm thinking that sounds like a pretty interesting woman, um, <laughs> which I, I suppose I need to hear because, as you mentioned, my last two books sort of emerged into a black hole. And I think it's not inappropriate to start this conversation by saying that the pandemic has really triggered a crisis of confidence in me as a writer to some extent. Um, and I think it's important to be reminded maybe of the things that I have achieved while I'm struggling to get back into producing new work and hoping that uh, I'll be able to produce books that will be read and people will be able to purchase in the future. And I know that 
you understand exactly yeah. what that feeling is like. Understand it deeply. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pande- I think Helen Moffat said the pandemic swallowed our books and it definitely swallowed our revenues along with that. So. Completely, yeah. So it's hard. I mean, it's hard when you're writing. It's easy not to equate writing with some expectation of payment. But once they're out there, it's quite hard to get a negative royalty statement. So, yeah. Um, yeah. You have written an incredible body of work um, that is just so broad. It took me like a long time to just decide what to ask you about in today's um, episode. But let's start with your most recent book, Femicide in South Africa. The book originated with your PhD studies. In a country like hours where GBV is so common. Tell me why femicide in particular and the way that the media reports on femicide caught your interest as a topic that needed a deeper dive. To give some context to that, I'd been looking for a few years, kind of around about, uh, well, I want to say the last, the, ter- the end, the start of this, the last decade. I'm trying to add things up in my head now and I'm feeling old. Um, after the World Cup, I decided that I wanted to study further. And so I had that sort of bubbling around in the back of my mind and I wasn't sure if I was going to try and do a master's degree initially in creative writing or in something else. Um, and I wanted to study because I wanted to teach more. I taught occasionally at WITS and I enjoyed it. And I thought uh, getting a master's would be a good way to teach. And in the middle of that, I'd started working as a, an ad hoc sort of researcher at Africa Check. This was before we set up TriFacts, um, this independent or this kind of a training unit that I set up a few years later. And one of the first really big reports that I did for Africa Check was debunking claims of a white genocide in South Africa, which were claims that had been highly publicized by the singer, Steve Hofmeier. And when that report came out, um, he'd made a number of claims over a period of months that he'd, he'd kind of been punting on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, and as part of that process, there was also a discussion around farm killings and somehow it turned out into kind of Steve Hofmeier and Sunette Bridges, who's the daughter of the late uh, singer, popular singer, Bless Bridges, um, regularly kind of taunting me with crime information. And at one point, uh, I'd given an interview to an Afrikaans newspaper, the report of Bielt, and I'd said something like the problem with these false claims that are being made by people like Steve Hofmeier is that they, you know, they draw our attention to the wrong thing. And I made a a statement and I said, you know, a white woman is still at greater risk of violence from her intimate partner than from a stranger in a dark alleyway. And as it turned out, about a year later, I got charged with hate speech at the Human Rights Commission by um, Sunette Bridges and the Freedom Front and a group of other people for making that statement, which they said was hate speech against white men, because in their minds, white men didn't kill their partners, that only other races who were, you know, not as nice as white people did that. It was a long and really strange period of time. The the charge got dismissed at the Human Rights Commission. They also charged the Medical Research Council and Africa Check with hate speech. Um, It was quite bizarre. But during that time, I started thinking, um, oh, so Sunette Bridges started literally sending me on social media, on her Facebook pages. She started posting uh, and addressing them to me, lists of white women who had been killed by um, what she would often refer to as Swart Barbara 
um, on her, so Black Barbarians on her page. And I should also point out that Sunette Bridges' Facebook pages were taken down a number of times for racism. Um, so understand the context there as well. And I never responded to her directly, but I started thinking, well, you know, if she's got these lists of all these women that have been murdered by strangers, I'm going to research, I'm going to find a list of women who've been murdered by their partners, because I knew statistically they existed because of a, a number of studies that had been done by the South African Medical Research Council. And when I started looking at um, South African media coverage, which was my area of expertise, my area of really familiarity, and I'd always been very, very good at finding things. I'm a great researcher. I enjoy it. I like following rabbit holes. I couldn't find these stories. I was looking through press reports and I could find barely a handful of news stories of white women that had been killed by their intimate partners. And I knew they existed, but they weren't in the press. And I thought, why is that? And I also started to think, what might that mean in terms of how people perceive and understand how women are murdered in the country? And I thought, well, let me see if anybody has researched how the media covers femicide. Um, and I found that the last time that it had been done was in the 1990s. There was nothing recent. And the work that had been done in the 1990s was important, but it was quite small. It only looked regionally. And then I thought, oh, this is a really good research topic. So I trotted off to one of my colleagues at WITS, and I said, I found the, the topic I want to do initially for my master's. Um, and I was going to research how the South African media covered femicide and see what could be learned from that. And that was the starting point for this. And after, um, after the first sort of year or so, I'd built a database of media coverage of one year's worth of killings, multiple years worth of media coverage. And I built such a large database that I realized at that point the project I had was substantially more than was needed for a master's. And I went off to my supervisor and I, I sort of said, look, I'm sure everyone asks this, but um, do you think I could upgrade my master's to a PhD? And uh, she, she thought it was a possibility, but because my work involved a lot of data, we also had to get a, a new supervisor on board. So I had two fantastic supervisors. I was honestly blessed by the academic gods for the first time in my life. I think I had a very rocky academic uh, career before then. So I got, finally got lucky. And that turned into this, this then, I don't know, that was kind of, I disappeared into a, a PhD black hole of research and work, um, which I only emerged out of in 2019. Um, but it all started off with a report that I did for Africa Check and having random trolls taunt me on Twitter and Facebook with misinformation, which I felt the urge to, to correct. And in order to correct it, I had to produce information that was valid. So because the information wasn't there, I built it myself. Uh, did you send them each a copy of your book? <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't. So one other thing I've learned along the way, and I haven't learned this lesson perfectly. I am very imperfect with my application of much of the wisdom that I know, um, is that there's a, no point in engaging with people like that, I believe. So many years ago for my mental health, really, <laughs> I made sure that I don't communicate at all with Steve Hofmeyer. Um, the last time I had an interaction with him was shortly before Donald Trump got elected when I wrote an editorial about Hillary Clinton that appeared also in one of the Afrikaans language newspapers. And Steve Hofmeyer joined in a, a group of men online who had pasted a picture of my face um, onto a body inside a gas chamber 
with with uh, Trump, I think, or someone pushing the you know Nazi gas chamber button, and Steve thought that was very funny. So you know you can understand why he's not really the kind of person that I think there's a potential for productive engagement with. So I, I don't make an effort there. Yeah. Um, my job is not to kind of convince racists that you know they they should see the error of their ways um, by by trying to reason with them because it's it's irrational. Um, that type of bigotry. And Sinet Bridges has left the country. I think she lives in America now. And if she's still active online, I'm not aware of it. Wow. I mean, it's amazing. One of the things that I want to talk about a bit later is around how easy it is. You say this in femicide. It's like once you put misinformation out there, it's like a zombie. It won't die because it's dead already. And I think this is exactly people with power and platforms have the ability to put these false statements out there and very rarely ever have to take them back. But one of the um, the things that you do in your book is also talk about the, the definition of femicide itself, which is complicated by various usages in the media. Um, I think we both know that reporting on gender-based violence in general and the way that the government holds conversations about gender-based violence often involves a flawed use of language which complicates matters deeply. So for listeners who haven't read your book yet, when we speak about femicide, what exactly are we speaking about? That's a good question and an important topic to discuss. From my perspective, the way I define femicide is I use the uh, definition that's used in two the two medical research council studies on femicide that were done, which is the killing of any woman uh, aged 14 years and older, and I'll discuss the importance of the age in a moment. Um, the classic definition of femicide, it's actually a fairly recent usage, although the word is obviously older, um, but the use of the term femicide to mean the killing of women uh, has only really been about since the mid-late 1970s. And in fact, a South African sociologist called Diana Russell, who recently passed away, she introduced or she highlighted the term um, at a conference in Belgium in, I think it was 1976, I don't have my notes in front of me. And her reason for the use of femicide was she wanted to create a term that distinguished the killing of women from homicide, the killing of men. Um, and I think it was Lisa Vetten who nicely explained this, was that when a woman is killed, her gender isn't incidental to the killing. Um, and this was quite important because at the time, there was very little acknowledgement of anything like um, family violence or violence within the home against women, the concept of marital rape as a legal, you know, legally understood concept didn't exist. Obviously, the actions existed. But I mean, in South Africa, marital rape wasn't acknowledged until, you know, much, much later. Um, and this was around about a time where violence against women was starting to gain new terminology, which I go into in quite some detail in my book. Um, so the original definition of femicide that Diana Russell suggested was the killing of a woman by a man because she is a woman. And my issue with that, quite simply, is that to unpack motive as to why a man kills a woman, and the majority, vast majority of perpetrators of murder are men, um, and the vast majority of victims of murder are men also. But to unpack motive is very, very difficult in a court of law, but even outside of a court of law. And when you try and say, oh, well, it's only a femicide if we can prove that he murdered her because she was a woman, it becomes tricky. And then we exclude a lot of deaths, which uh, may not need to be excluded. And my logic is also that in very patriarchal societies, which we pretty much all exist in to some degree or another, how does one separate out 
a latent and inherent misogyny from motive when people commit violence against women. Women make particularly easy targets, and that's because we live in patriarchal societies. Um, from a sort of a, an epidemiological point of view and from a, a sort of a crime point of view, we often don't know who the perpetrator is. Maybe in Norway, where there's like nine murders a year, sure. But in South Africa, where we have so many murders, there are many, many cases where we simply don't know who the perpetrator is. So we can't say the perpetrator was a man. We can't say why he, or maybe it's a she, did you know, perpetrate the killing. Um, so those are not really useful from my research perspective or when we're looking at femicide as an actual act rather than as a theoretical construct. It's not really useful to say uh, somebody who's killed by a man because she was a woman. So for the similar reasons, the Medical Research Council just includes all killings, or so killings of women. Um, and the definition in terms of the age is because there's a very different profile for females once they start either entering into relationships with men or being seen as being available to those relationships. So this is not necessarily about consent, but it's about when men start to see women as being available to them uh, for a sexual or a romantic or what would be considered kind of an intimate type of relationship because that completely changes females' risk profiles in terms of murder, whereas the risk profiles for girls and female infants is completely different and the types of people who kill them are also different from, from older women. So my definition of femicide is the killing of any woman aged 14 years or older. That includes um, trans women, very, very importantly, I think, Trans woman femicide is, or trans femicide is a significant and important subcategory of femicide, and they are very much killed because they are women. But uh, this is debated everywhere else, and the government doesn't always use a consistent term, even in South Africa. We have lots of different definitions. Stat uh, Statistics South Africa will use one version of femicide. In fact, Statistics South Africa has used the Diana Russell version. You know, the Justice Department might use something else. And... The problem when we have so many definitions running around is that it's very easy for that to become a loophole for a lack of accountability. One of the major critiques, I think, of or criticisms of my book is where I criticize activism. Um, so a lot of gender activism relies on, for me, rhetoric and the use of terminology that is not necessarily well-defined. So we see people going and, and delivering petitions or uh, protests to our president even and saying, um, we demand, you know, no bail for femicide. But what that doesn't acknowledge is femicide does not exist on our statutes as a crime. There is no crime of femicide in South African law books. There is homicide, uh, sorry, there's murder and there's attempted, uh, attempted murder. So when you say no bail for femicide, how would that work in a court of law when femicide doesn't legally exist as a definition? And the same applies to quite loose and broad terms like gender-based violence. Um, when people say uh, no bail for all gender-based violence crimes, do they mean all crimes against women? Do they mean all crimes involving sexual violence? It, these terms are so loose, and we think that there's a commonly understood definition, but once you start to dig into it, there really isn't. And because there's no common definition, it often allows people in positions of authority to acknowledge uh, a protest and to acknowledge a request, but they don't really ever have to do anything about it. 
So I think it, it, it erodes accountability and transparency. I mean, I'm 100% with you on that. I think you know that already. And the same is true with, for example, domestic violence in that you can open a criminal case of domestic violence, but actually you're going to be charged with assault or attempted murder or something like that. So you've mentioned something there in your in your response around trans women, for example, and I think in your book you talk about a number of types of um, femicides in South Africa. And one of the many interesting things that you touch on in the book is the idea of the ideal victim, which is a term coined by Nils Christie to describe a person or category of individuals who, when hit by crime, most readily is given the complete and legitimate status of being a victim. And your book shows that these particular victims or women in the case of femicide and the disproportionate media coverage that they get, despite many other women being murdered in similarly terrible circumstances, contributes to a flawed understanding of femicide. So can you say more about this idea of the ideal victim and how the impact of the media only covering these types of cases hinders our understanding of the problem in general? So when Nils Christie, and this I love always about Scandinavian criminologists, is literally they come from one of the areas of the least least crime in the world, right? Um, but they dominate the landscape of criminology, uh, which I find fascinating and problematic also. And one of the things I'm hoping to do and encourage, not just in myself, but through my students, is to grow the amount of research we do in violence and crime from the global south, because... We have a lot more murder. It should be our area of specialization. But Christie came up with this very interesting hypothetical construct. And he said it. It's a hypothesis. It's not a real person. But it does also exist kind of as a real person, where the ideal victim is somebody who society readily assigns victim status to. We agree that that person is a victim. Um, And his ideal victim was like a little old lady. And he said this little old lady should ideally be um, on her way to do something good. So she's not on her way to a bar. You know, she's, she's on her way to deliver a basket of food to a, a sick relative. <clears throat> she should be accosted by somebody who is completely unknown to her. So the perpetrator of violence against the ideal victim should be a stranger. Um, he, he should be physically dominant over her. So she should not have the ability to fight back or resist him. <clears throat> and um, so these are all categories that when you look into our structure of who we, we assign, readily assign victim status to, um, we see that this is the blameless victim, you know, whereas if somebody is maybe a sex worker or somebody is a physically strong young woman or somebody is sexually promiscuous or somebody was drinking at a tavern or something like that, we, they, they sort of lose points on that victim status hierarchy almost. Um, and what we see as a result of that is the vast majority of crimes against women and femicides are, you know, committed against women who are probably of a sexually active age, who are, mostly because they're also murdered by their intimate partners, um, and who are not ideal in a sense. They might be unemployed, they might be uneducated, they might live in an informal or a low-income settlement. And as a result, the vast majority of cases never get any coverage because they're not seen as important by the press. So what we see with the coverage of not just femicide, but many other types of violence against women, is that a handful of cases tend to get the lion's share of coverage. And that's because these are cases where we can easily assign a valid victim status to the person who's, who, who's uh, you know, the victim of the crime. And in South Africa, 
one of the biggest categories of these is little old ladies, because we do understand that they are defenseless um, and we, we can easily understand that they're victims. But something I think that's quite relevant given sort of the news around the moment is also we tend to easily assign victim status to women who are middle class and who are mothers or who are respectable. And in South Africa, that often means um, white women. And as we see in other types of coverage, it might mean uh, younger black women who are, let's say, university students. These are very acceptable victims. And I want to say socially acceptable, where we can all feel outraged and we can all feel that they didn't deserve it. They didn't deserve this violence against them because they they were a nice girl. They were a good woman. They did the right things. They were doing the right things. They were in the right job or in the right career. They were behaving in a way that we all agree a woman should behave. Uh, and that could be even a feminist version of how a woman should behave. This was a young student who was, you know, um, learning at university and, uh, you know, was independent. So every year what we see is we get a handful of what we would call mega cases, and these tend to get the lion's share of media coverage. Um, and typically they revolve around a victim who is possibly well-educated, middle class, possibly attractive. The one outlier to this, and this is an extreme outlier, is Anine Boyson, who was none of the, he had none of the qualities that would typically make a mega case, but in fact, it was because Anine's death fell in between two other mega cases that had got huge amount of attention. And I've actually got a chapter on this coming out in a, that'll be in a book coming out in the next few months, um, which looks at how the um, rape and murder of Jyoti Singh in Delhi and the murder of uh, Riva Steenkamp in South Africa, how those two separate incidents actually boosted the coverage of Anine Boyson's murder. But for the most part, we're used to hearing about middle class, pretty, attractive, um, good women, you know, good examples of women. Those are usually who make our mega case stories. We don't typically hear very many stories about an unemployed woman who was drunk with her boyfriend on a Saturday night and they got into an argument and he beat her to death and he didn't realize that he'd killed her until Sunday morning when he tried to wake her up. Um, and the problem is that this gives us a sort of a false perception of who is at risk. And so we, we walk around in the suburbs and we think, uh, you know, certain types of people are at risk and certain types of people aren't. And we don't pay very much attention to the majority of kind of very under-resourced and very under-protected, very vulnerable women who are living across South Africa and whose deaths almost certainly will never even make the newspaper or, you know, or, or even Twitter. What my research found when I did my PhD was that fewer than 20% of femicides that occur every year in South Africa are ever covered by the press. And a handful of cases make up the vast majority of press coverage. In fact, when I started looking into media coverage, just local media coverage of the killing of Riva Steenkamp, the articles that covered Riva's death, just that one single victim were more than all of the articles for all of the other murder victims in the 12 months preceding Reva's killing combined. So that gives us a really just, you know, uh, an inaccurate perception of how femicide works. It also gives us an inaccurate impression of how justice works. A lot of people learn about the justice system from watching 
Reva's killer getting getting prosecuted, and they think that justice comes swiftly, and that court ca court cases can happen within a few months after a killing. And for the majority of murders, that simply isn't the case. So the mega cases don't really give us a clear idea of how violence happens on a regular basis. It doesn't tell us about the police system in the real world. It doesn't tell us about most people's experience of justice. But this is ultimately how most of us learn about these things. So it's very interesting to compare perceptions and reality. Yeah, and in the book you you focus um, on many elements of the of the way that that sort of misrepresentation of what is the normal case in the media has. So you start you link problems with media coverage on femicide to the problems with, for instance, media coverage on farm murders. Um, and and show that the stories that we see don't reflect the actual prevalence. And for people who are not in media studies or media theory, you, you talk about the theory of agenda setting, which is that there's a strong correlation between the issues that the mass media emphasizes and the importance that mass media, mass audiences, sorry, attribute to these issues. So the media covers issues it thinks are important, or like you say with Indian Boyson, who's stuck in the middle of two very big cases, suddenly they feel they must continue to cover it or it's selling newspapers. And so audience think that the issues that the media covers are the important issues. And so with this in mind, what do you think we as the public think we know about femicide and what are we getting wrong? I think there's some one other important thing that we need to consider, which is in such a high crime country like South Africa, it would be impossible to cover every single femicide. Uh, we just wouldn't have the resources, even if we were the media system of 20 years ago when our newsrooms were three times the size and we could spend many more days working on a story and we had the wire services and all that sort of stuff. So it's impractical to think we could cover every case. It's also unlikely that members or the audiences would be interested in most femicides. I remember years ago when I used to work in women's magazines and people always used to say, yeah, you've got to put a curvy girl on the cover. Why does it always have to be a supermodel? But every time we would put a normal looking woman on the cover, sales would plummet and people wanted Julia Roberts. That's what they wanted. So people, audiences and news buyers consume more when there's a beautiful girl being murdered. Journalists who, who work for a long time in the press, your gut tells you what's going to be a big story and what isn't. And uh, so there's also a journalistic version of an ideal victim, which is not necessarily the little old lady. But the ideal victim is, you know, the, the pretty model who gets murdered by a superstar boyfriend. So we know that those are the kind of stories that are going to drive sales. But we get a lot wrong within that. Um, first of all, I think what audiences get wrong is we've distorted media literacy into an inherent distrust of media. And I think we're seeing that a lot during COVID now. We know that news doesn't cover everything and it can't always tell us the whole story. But sometimes that can be perverted into a complete rejection of what the news media covers. And that's problematic in itself. So we, we question the news media, but then we almost take that questioning too far. And what we have to remind ourselves as audiences, as readers, as viewers, and as listeners is that when you hear a story about femicide, remind yourself that there are eight women being killed every single day. And maybe one of those stories is going to make it into the news. The rest are never going to make it into the news. So there's always going to be a lot that is uncovered. What I know from researching news coverage is that we don't hear enough 
about intimate partner violence, fatal intimate partner violence in our news stories. So intimate femicide, as I might refer to it, is undercovered quite significantly. Um, that gives us the mistaken perception. So what are the, if, if, if we're not covering intimate femicide in the news, what are we covering? We're covering violence that happens, uh, was committed by strangers or violence that's committed by family members. Um, and that can give people the mistaken impression that our biggest, biggest risk of violence or our biggest threat is a stranger. And that's why you get people on sort of neighborhood WhatsApp groups saying, you know, the, the recycling guy was pushing his trolley past my house. And uh, we fear the wrong types of people. And unfortunately, as a researcher of crime, I think South Africa is a terribly scary place. I think there is a lot to be afraid of. But we often worry about the wrong things. And we build up these almost urban legends around risk and around fear. And it's um, there are people who prey on these types of fears. This is why the gun lobby will tell women that in order to protect themselves against violence, they need to have a firearm. But they never explain that um, many women, even women who work in the police services, are shot and killed with their own firearms, that having a firearm in a house uh, increases your risk of not just violence, but particularly a fatal outcome to that violence by a huge amount. So a firearm, from my point of view, creates more risk for a woman, does not protect her at all, unless you're an extremely highly trained person who... Uh, carries your weapon on you at all times and knows how to draw and shoot in the dark at three in the morning. Um, and there are so many other factors that play into that. But so because we build up a, myth a mythology around who crime happens to and who violence happens to and who commits that violence, we develop responses and strategies that are based on myth. So we put CCTV cameras up and we tell people to buy firearms where neither of those are actually proven to have any deterrent effect on this sort of stuff. And in the meantime, we continue to ignore the real problems that we actually know about and that we can clearly identify. So we know that the majority of women in South Africa who are murdered are murdered by a current or a former or rejected intimate partner. And the problem with this is once you acknowledge that, you realize that crime deterrence is so difficult because how do you deter that level of violence within a home? And I don't necessarily have the answer to that, but I always say to women that your, your greatest threat to you is not a stranger in an alleyway, but it's the guy who you sleep next to at night. And you touch on this in the book, um, on the prevalence of hoaxes and scares that seem to make it seem as if suddenly femicide or for example, a recent example of trafficking or abductions are on the increase. And we saw this again in the lockdown when the police commissioner had to issue a statement asking people to stop spreading fake news about child trafficking. So even when these fake news stories are found to be fake, and I mean, you and I can work as hard as we want to on Twitter to show that they're fake, there's very rarely the same interest in sharing the correct news after the fact that there was in spreading the panic, which you reference as the law of incorrect tweets um, from uh, researcher Craig Silverman. So what is the impact of this sense of creating a false panic? So this is an important concept or principle that speaks to the underlying work that professional fact-checking organizations do today. And in fact, the reason why we need them. Two things. So the first one is that we cannot make good decisions based on bad information. So it's really important that as consumers of information, 
we are able to use better information sources that can enable us to make better decisions, better choices based on that information. But the second thing is we know that false information also has direct negative consequences. And one of those is through creating fear and also undermining social cohesion. And in the South African context, the impact of that, I mean, let's look at uh, the what happened in Senegal after the killings that took place there, many other killings here, where the spreading, the rapid spreading of rhetoric and heightened kind of information really exposes that we have problems in terms of social cohesion in South Africa, which is not surprising given our past. But when people deliberately spread, or even accidentally spread false information that further erodes the sort of social compact, the trust that is needed within a community. And it's quite ironic because one of the things that keeps an individual safe is a safe community. And one of the things that keeps a community safe is coherence and trust. So false information breaks down trust between individuals and between communities. And that is essential in order to keep us safe. Um, the second thing, it, it creates fear. And that fear, again, as I explained earlier, makes us develop strategies that respond to the wrong issues. So we are sold, for example, closed circuit television cameras as some kind of a security solution in the suburbs. But CCTV cameras don't work exceptionally well on windy streets in leafy suburbs where there are trees blocking the view. All they do is they capture the information, usually held by some third-party data server that we have no ownership of and no access to. But they capture the information that could maybe be viewed after the fact, but they don't stop crime in and of itself. So the creation of fear um, sells certain products and it also undermines the cohesion that we need in order to heal. And we see this again and again. It's not only about femicide or about race. We see this particularly around any issue that we're likely to be emotional. Because when we get into a state of emotion, it bypasses some of our critical thinking faculties. It bypasses some of our, our ability to be rational. And if somebody says a child is at risk, we you know, immediately worry. We often share information without pressing pause, without thinking whether the information might be correct. Because our head is telling us a child is at risk. It's more important to be fast. We need to share this information urgently. Um, so we see this around child abduction around, around trafficking of women, all the stories that were coming out during one period, I, think, I can't remember if it was a few months ago or last year because pandemic time, I, I don't have a good sense of time anymore all the time, where there were all these women allegedly getting abducted. Um, and these types of stories create panic in and of themselves until eventually the fear actually manifests as something real almost in a sense. Um, we saw that at the end of July when there was the, the looting that happened in KZN and then that spread to some small extent in Gauteng. Um, but then all of a sudden there were all these, you know, rumors going around that whole day on the Monday. I remember there was kind of endless series of WhatsApp saying um, there's crowds of people moving up Jan Smuts Avenue. Benmore Gardens is being looted. Balfour Park Shopping Center is being looted. And none of those things were real, but they created panic and the panic created a real response and the real response might have ranged from panic buying at Woolworths it might result in um, untrained community watch groups suddenly arming themselves and taking to the streets of their suburbs 
armed with weapons and maybe there's a risk there of somebody actually being harmed who is not a threat to the community, but because the community is primed to see everybody as a threat, they could respond in that way. So there are many potential outcomes from creating fear and sharing it thoughtlessly. But that's also, that is the pathway of misinformation is it exploits um, our fear respo response. It exploits our desire to save ourselves and to potentially save others. So some good advice there and again, I know this and I don't always follow this myself. So listen to the wisdom, but don't always do as I do is when you are feeling very emotional or very angry or very upset by a piece of information, if it makes you feel really afraid, and this is a really important one, if it makes you feel very smug, if it makes you feel very vindicated, if it makes you feel like, oh, I was right about this all along. Those are really important signs that you should pause before sharing that information, because those are the sort of the the short circuits that can be employed to to bypass our ability to think critically about the information being shared with us. And then we share before thinking and we find we've shared something that is, in fact, incorrect. I was very pleased to see recently on Twitter that they've added when you want to retweet someone sharing a news article and you haven't read the article yourself first, which is obviously revealing to everyone listening that I was about to share something that I had not read. It, Twitter asks you, wouldn't you like to read the article first? And I think it's those small, um, like you say, that deep breath, the small pause before you forward something or retweet something or share something that actually helps you to disengage, you know, that, um, that sympathetic nervous system adrenaline flight or fight response that you do have when you feel emotional about something. So thank you for that advice. It was actually what I was going to ask you next. But um, for other listeners who haven't ever gone to look at Africa Check's website, I highly recommend it. They do have a lot of links on how to spot fake news and things to ask. And if you're not sure, you can send it to them to make sure that you've got the right information before you share something silly and detract resources from what I mean is police, you know, media attention to the wrong issue when there's other things that need to be covered. But from femicide and fake news and crime onto your fiction, somehow on top of writing an incredible full-length non-fiction book last year, parenting, lecturing, keeping us sane on Twitter, you also found the time to write another novel and have it published last year, and you've written Knucklebone before that. So I finished Knucklebone last month, and Three Bodies is next on my to-be-read pile. Knucklebone was an absolutely wild ride through Joburg, Muti murders, witches, policing. Where did that idea come from? And was it easy for you to switch from the journalistic fact-checking, PhD writing to this really fantastic creative fiction? I really enjoyed writing Knucklebone. I didn't enjoy trying to get it published. That was hard work. So hard. Um, the idea for the story came so naturally. I'm a bit of a mixed methods writer, I suppose, where writing is very much work. So I am very used to and competent to sit in front of a computer and say, right, I need to produce 5,000 words today. That's what I'm going to do. But I do also sometimes rely a little bit on inspiration um, to come to me organically. And when it happens, I think you've got to grab it and, um, uh, you know, pull, pull it in. And this story literally popped into my head one day 
when I was driving in Joburg, there's a section, of, kind of a double-decker section of highway that drives past Johannesburg Central Police Station, what formerly used to be called John Foster Square. And it, it's quite a, it's just next to Newtown. It's quite an interesting section of highway and interesting section of the city. And as I was driving over that part on shuffle on my, I think it was my iPod because it was an old, this was a long time ago, um, was the uh, Lee Perry, Max Romeo song, Chase the Devil. And I'd remembered dancing to at clubs when I was much younger, way too young to be in clubs. But there's this great line in there that says, I'm going to put on an iron shirt and chase Satan out of this earth. Um, and for some reason, while I was listening to it, I think there must have been a lot of stories in the press at the time about rhino poaching. And this whole universe like popped into my head, which was um, a guy who was um, trying to fight against rhino poaching and the people who were trying to poach the rhinos were not, in fact, um, Chinese uh, poachers, but were people from Europe and from other parts of the world who had pretty much, you know, used up all of their own magical resources in terms of animals and, um, you know, and plants and things like that. And we're looking at Africa as this pretty much the old colonial narrative. You know, Africa was the source of gold. Africa was the source of all the, the untapped resources. Um and and how he was going to fight this. So I was kind of imagining this modern day knight, although I suppose a bit more like the Fisher King, I guess. And I had a, an idea from that of kind of what was going to happen and where it was going to go and where it was going to end. Um, I didn't know exactly how it was going to turn out. Um, and that's usually how I write fiction is I have kind of, I have certain plot points and then I have to navigate myself through, you know, in fact, all the characters have to navigate themselves to and through those plot points. Um, and as soon as I started working on Knucklebone, I also realized that I wanted to, and this also came out of my research where I, at, at one point, had spent quite a long, quite a number of months working at the, the Faraday Muti market, and I'd been interviewing people there. And I'd been trying to learn a little bit more about uh, understanding traditional practices in South Africa and how they were depicted. Because yet again, this is another area where in the press, we often read about Muti murders, um, and Sangomas in particular are quite vilified in a lot of conventional press coverage. And that wasn't necessarily the case with a lot of the Sangomas that I spoke to, in terms of how, you know, they weren't the ones that were using animal parts. In fact, many of them didn't use animal parts at all. Um, many of them were incredibly aware about vulnerable species and other things. And I started working with uh, a Sangoma at the time, um, just getting some inputs in terms of uh, traditional understandings of, I suppose, good and bad, good and evil, um, and also various magical powers. And there's a limit as to what I could be told or what I could know, because I'm very much an outsider. And I wove those things together into the story that then involved an ex-cop, uh, Ian Jack, partnering with a, a Sangoma, Murray Joyce to fight together against an outside threat, which were these uh, literal foreigners, kind of Europeans coming into South Africa and trying to poach animals. And they also worked together with a, a police captain, um, Reshma. And the three of them sort of, it starts off with what looks like an ordinary crime. You know, every South African's worst nightmare or suburban South African's worst nightmare is a home invasion, but it actually turns into something else. And it was a wonderful book to write, although I had to rewrite it about four times. Um, anybody who writes fiction will understand that pain. Um, 
And the final version that I wrote was uh, ultimately good enough. Yeah, so it, it was it was a very interesting writing process, and and I had huge fun doing it. Um, I had a co- completely different headspace required for writing fiction than for writing nonfiction. So um, I enjoy doing that, but I find it much harder. So I mean, you've just said that it's good enough, but as I said in the introduction, it was listed for awards. So it was more than good enough by the time that it was published. So those four rewrites were obviously important for the process, and and that turned it into the polished book that it was. And then last year you managed to re- uh, release the sequel, which is called Three Bodies, um, again with Ian Jack and uh, Captain Reshma. Tell us a little bit about that story and um, why serial killers this time. When Knucklebone, when I finally managed to sell Knucklebone to a publisher, uh, my agent at the time asked me, did I have a sequel? Because I think it's easier for agents to sell, you know, books in bulk. <laughs> And I said, yes, of course I have a sequel. I don't have the faintest idea, but I made one up on the spot. And um, it came out of one of the conversations I'd had with uh, one of the Sangomas I'd consulted with, where we'd spoken about mermaids being trapped in the Hodebiusport Dam. And the idea for Knucklebone, uh, sorry, for Three Bodies, started when I was thinking about this idea of uh, female water spirits or mermaids or whatever you want to call them, because there's a very, very important African tradition of mermaids, by the way, that have nothing to do with European mermaids. Um, so the idea of kind of, or female spirits or magical entities that are feminine being trapped in the Hodebiersport Dam. And I'd also, for a number of years, had worked, done some consulting work in the areas around Hodebiersport. So I'd become more familiar with the landscape. And I'd always been very interested in the obscenity really of the golf estates around Hodebiersport. So these extremely luxurious golf estates and this man-made dam that was often permanently clogged up with an invasive water lily on the top. So in fact, the original title of Three Bodies was going to be Nile Lily because I was very interested in the, or the intersection, sorry, of many story ideas. One was this invasive water plant, the hyacinth, that takes over the dam surface. And that actually comes from South America, not from, but it's called the Nile Lily. Um, and that, together with um, the acid mine, the uh, toxic mine water drainage, um, Johannesburg's water problems, and then linked through to that, again, at the time, I think there was quite a lot of focus on stories around female trafficking. Um, and what I'd learned from working on editing projects around migration in South Africa, you know, was that the majority of trafficking that occurs is actually domestic um, but that we obviously do get trafficking of, a, you know, some other woman from other African countries. And I wanted to explore this concept, but in a slightly different way. And so I just, again, started off with a, a beginning point and an end point. So I knew it was going to start at the Hodebiersport Dam. And in fact, it ends again at the Hodebiersport Dam. And I'm not going to tell you about the ending, but I knew where it was going to start and where it was going to end. And I had no idea how it was going to go there. So I went back to my Sangoma and I started speaking about the concept of the story and um, and that really helped to drive where the rest of the story, kind of how, how the story took place and where it went. And I thought Three Bodies, I really loved writing. Um, it was a lot easier because I didn't have to rewrite it four times. I think I only had to, you know, do it once. Um, I knew the characters a little bit better at that point, And I knew the landscape really well. I felt more like I was putting on an old pair of shoes, well, a worn pair of shoes that I was really comfortable in. Um, and I was really hoping that Three Bodies was going to do very well, but it literally came out 
the week that we went into lockdown and all the bookstores closed. Well, I'm hoping now, I mean, I'm super excited to read it just after listening. I'm hoping now that people listening are going to go out and buy it because it's, I think it's so, it is transformative to read stories that are set in South Africa and to see, to be able to picture the scenery, but also the types of characters that you introduced here. So please, everyone listening, go out and buy Nechama's book. So I ask everybody three questions at the end of the podcast. And the first is, what is a book or books that have inspired your feminism? Wow, that's such a good question. I have to say that I grew up reading a lot of science fiction and fantasy. And I think that a lot of my concepts of where women fit into society, as well as concepts of gender, were probably shaped by ideas that people had placed on other planets or in alternate universes, I suppose. And I hope it doesn't sound trite at all, because I know these days everybody can sort of acknowledge Margaret Atwood as, you know, a kind of a, a fundamental, important writer. Um, but, I mean, I'm thinking of, although I read this much later, but Ursula Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness, um, books like that for me are so fundamental in challenging and completely exploding notions of gender. And I think that a large part of my contemporary understanding of feminism, not my understanding of feminism as a teenager or as a young adult, um, but a lot of my contemporary understanding of what feminism is and why it's so important is essentially deeply rooted in an otherworldly notion, and and this is for me key. The reason why it had to be otherworldly was because if we had imposed those concepts onto our world as it is now, it would have been unbelievable. And that's perhaps why science fiction and fantasy has often been so important in pushing the boundaries of what could or couldn't be accepted, is because you know, if you just move it onto another planet, you can switch things around and you can change things up. Um, and that opens a, you know, a gateway for thinking about things differently. So I would like to say that, uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of male writers as well. Um, but uh, science fiction and fantasy writers were quite fundamental into allowing me to think about things differently. In terms of... Um, other thinking, I think the last 10 years of my life have been consumed with academic reading, and I don't know if I can really separate that out from anything else. Um, something that has occurred to me, and I hope I'm not going on too much of a tangent here, I mentioned earlier uh, the inclusion of trans women and trans femicides. Um, it occurred to me over the last few months how much my research into femicide had also helped to shift my understanding of, I don't even know if, I mean, is it intersectional feminism? I don't want to say intersectional feminism in a, in a, in a way that's too broad. I do know that probably even five or six years ago, I was still clinging to a notion of feminism that relied on using gender terminology that was very, very woman-specific. Um, and I remember being pissed off at times, was like, why can't you say 
women who have periods um, or women who menstruate. What was so offensive about that? And as women, we fought so long and so hard just to be able to talk about our bodies and our functions. And I think the more I see how violence is inflicted against women and how violence is inflicted against women who don't conform to societal ideas of femininity. So that includes particularly lesbian women, black lesbian women in South Africa are subjected to horrific um, violence regularly, but also how that affects trans women and even people who are sometimes trans women and sometimes not. So anybody who dares to even slightly become a woman or identify as a woman at any point immediately makes themselves vulnerable just through that um, expression and through that identification. And that really challenged me to, as part of a general learning process, and this is something that's important. I saw Ayelet Waldman recently writing about this as well, how her own ideas around um, trans women had shifted and had grown, is that hopefully, hopefully we all understand that as feminists, we're not rigid in our feminism, that we can grow, that we can say I was wrong, my, my understanding and my definition was immature or it was exclusive, um, and I am learning as I go along. But it's very important that we include trans women in our understanding of feminism. And weirdly enough, researching violence against women has taught me how absolutely valid that is. So, uh, you know, I want to say that part of my, you know, fundamental understanding of feminism these days is coming from women who are writing about violence being committed against women's bodies. And they are scholars from the global south. And I'm not going to remember anybody's names, of course, now because I'm staring into kind of space. Um, but I was quite proud that I think a really large number of the people that I reference and cite in my book and in my thesis are female researchers who are based in Africa, in India, in Latin America, um, and also researchers who are in North America, but who are, you know, Latina, who are, you know, represent First Nations or Indigenous interests, and to try and include all of those things. And that has really shaken up, I think, a lot of my assumptions around what I thought feminism was. Um, I don't know that violence is a great way to understand feminism, but I think violence is a great way to teach you why feminism is so absolutely essential. When you read broadly, you are exposed to, I, you have to shake your foundations every now and then, whereas you can easily go down a rabbit hole of reading people that reinforce what you already know and that sort of confirmation bias. But it's really great that you've been able to, to expand that through academic reading as well as through these otherworldly fictions. The second to last question I have to ask is, do you have a quote that you love or that you live by? <laughs> no, at the moment I'm just getting like words of wisdom from Instagram like everybody else, I think. I still, I can quote a lot from, from Frank Herbert's Dune, which I'm very excited about. I'm very, extremely excited to see the new movie. I used to know the, the litany against fear by heart, but I've, I've used that in certain times, but I wouldn't say that's kind of like words to live by. Um, no, I, th I think my quotes would change pretty much like I don't have one song. I have lots of songs and it'll depend on the day. As my husband Sam is also so excited for June. Um, we've had to watch the multiple trailers that have been um, coming out. Yeah, yeah I, want, I want my sons to, re to watch the, the original movie, which was what in fact introduced me to the June universe in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I still love, and it's got Carl McLaughlin in it. I mean, what's... <laughs> 
Seriously. Finally, since you've already dispensed so much wisdom during this very short um, episode, do you have any advice for other feminists on their journeys? I'm probably the worst person to ask for for advice on journeys, people as feminists. The last year and a half, I've found maybe even longer tears. I am 45 years old, white woman. It's hard for me to understand what I still need to learn about being a feminist because there are so many areas in my life where I constantly get confronted about white feminism. Um, and it's so interesting to almost, it's like on a, a video game where you, you lose and then you kind of get sent back to the beginning, right? And you have to do the whole thing all over again. And I feel like as a, a white feminist of a certain age, that that is necessarily where I'm at. So I have quite a lot of life experience and wisdom in many areas. But as a feminist, I feel like I'm constantly having to go back and relearn things. And as much as it's sometimes annoying or uncomfortable, that's also part of the process. Um, I do think that there's also a very different experience being a feminist when you're approaching 50 as opposed to being a feminist when you're in your 20s. You, you approach life and what you need to think of quite differently. So I can't approach my feminism as a woman in her 20s anymore. I have to approach it as an older woman, as a mother, as a mother of boys. Um, and I have to take all of those things into account while I'm trying to navigate my way through my understanding of this. But maybe the nicest thing about it is as I've gotten older, I realize that I am less sure about what I know. And I do think that overconfidence is sometimes a weakness. And I know that because I've been that person. When I first started off as a journalist, I didn't check myself because I was always right. I knew that I was right. And I was extremely lucky that I think I made one mistake with one phone number once over you know, a really lengthy period of time. One of the greatest lessons for me as a researcher and as a journalist was the years that I spent working with Africa Check because it taught me how to check my work and how to check my information. And as a sort of a consequence of that and the academic work I've been doing over the last now nearly decade is I've been learning how to almost do a, a literature review for new topics, new themes that I want to understand. How well do I understand this concept? And the one thing I know despite having, I'm very proud of my PhD, but having achieved that is a PhD teaches you how little you know about everything else. So you go from being extremely confident about things that you actually don't really have a good idea about to thinking, oh my God, I need to learn so much more about this area. Um, and I feel that that is also appropriate as part of the trajectory of aging as a feminist and learning more as a feminist is the more I learn the less I realize I know. Um, but it still continues to affirm the importance of feminism, um, the importance of developing, uh, propagating, sharing, debating, and discussing the terms that we use, what they refer to, and affirming why feminism is important, even as conventional or older notions of what uh, feminism means, you know, while these will continue to be revised, while for many people their understanding of gender is being challenged or, or revised. How does feminism fit into that? There's so much to learn. Um, and I'm quite sure 
there'll be people listening to this thinking that they already know it. They've already got it. They, they've got it under their thumb. They've pinned it down and they understand it completely. And uh, I hope very much that you don't. I hope in 20 years time you look back and you think, wow, I, I thought I knew so much then. And I realize I'm only kind of starting to, to climb that mountain now because otherwise, I don't know, maybe it's a bit Buddhist, but it's like if you stop learning and if you stop climbing the mountain, you, you die, you know, philosophically. So it's an ongoing journey. Um, I am challenged and a bit daunted, but I suppose I look forward to learning more as I go. Thank you so much, Nakama, for the work that you do, for coming on this episode, for just being willing to learn, I think, is a, um, a hugely useful life skill and also, you know, having an appetite for learning, which you clearly do. So thank you very much. Please, everyone, go out and buy Nakama's two books that came out during the lockdown. We we need your support as writers, but also because they're brilliant. Um, but, yeah, thank Thanks, you so yeah. much. Yeah, support writers because it's good for their emotional well-being. It's been lovely talking to you again. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.